really, really difficult for me because uh, it's impossible to do this without applying it to myself and it's a subject that I hate. Um, it's a subject that I've grown up not really wanting to ever discuss or talk about. And uh, I grew up a child of the 20th century. And what that means is until in my family circumstances and my social circumstances, until I became a minister, actually the year before I became a minister was the first funeral I ever attended. I knew very, very little about death. I was terrified of death. I, was, I grew up on a farm and I, I saw animals die and that was okay. But human beings, um, that happened in cartoons or in television films. And the reality of it was something I didn't want to think about at all. And then, um, after becoming a Christian, I read stuff about the early Christians and how they went, some went to their deaths very cheerfully. It kind of didn't make a whole lot of sense. There's a film, Quo Vadis, which I remember making a great impact on me because it had the evil Nero putting Christians to death. And as they're burnt to death, he was saying, why are they singing? Why are they singing? And that question always bothered me as well. I thought, how can you sing if, uh, if you're about to die? The other thing I'll say about death as an introduction is it's, of course, the great equalizer. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You and I, we are all in the same boat. That we reside in bodies of death. And that is very, very difficult to face up to. I remember one lady who wouldn't even go to her mother's funeral because she never wanted to go to any funeral because it just reminded her of death and she just didn't even want to think about it. Now, as I say, it's very, for me personally, this is, this is very, very difficult because I am one of those people whom Jesus came to save. In Hebrews 2, it says he came to free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. Uh, with some people, maybe that freedom comes instantly. For me, I, I, personally, it's going to take a long time because I know what Christ has done, but applying it and thinking about it is very, very difficult. And uh, I hope that as we look at this, that you will, I hope if you are a Christian, you will become immensely thankful for what Christ has done. And if you're not a Christian, I have no idea how you survive. I, I think you have to lie to yourself in order to survive as a non-Christian um, or believe a delusion. But uh, let's pray and then we'll go into this and we'll look at this. <coughs> Lord, we thank you that we are able to come and to consider your word and what your word has to say about something that is so vital to every one of us. We live in bodies that decay. We know, O Lord, that dust we are and to dust we shall return. And yet, within us, you have set the principle of eternity. You have made everything beautiful in its time, and you have set eternity in the hearts of men. Lord, help us. Help those of us who are scared. 
Help those of us, O Lord, who have great fears, maybe deeply hidden. Help those of us, O Lord, who want to be as God. We think we can control everything, even our own death, and yet we know, O Lord, we can't. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be like these early Christians, like the Christians Paul was writing to in Corinth, where he showed such a wonderful hope. Lord, may we also know and experience and have that hope, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Okay, um, Sean Ellis, can you come and just help me a little bit with this, please? Just, this is just for you guys. form to fill in <laughs> please feel free to take one just to help you guys have a look at that because we're not going to split in, into groups tonight because I, I want to just take our time um, doing this let's first of all go to the catechism question we're going to look at I will ask the question and please you give the answer what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death the souls their death made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory, and their bodies be still united in Christ, rest in their graves until the resurrection. What is, I want to begin actually just by asking simply, what is death? That's actually not as easy a question to answer as you might think. The common understanding uh, until the mid-19th century was it's when the heart stopped beating. But we now know that the heart can stop beating and yet be resuscitated. And there have been cases of people whose hearts have stopped beating for an hour or people have had an artificial heart. So it's actually quite difficult if you've got to pronounce somebody dead. What does it mean? This is a standard definition uh, from a coroner's office. Either irreversible cessation of the circulation of blood in the body of the person or irreversible cessation of all function of the brain of the person. And even then, that doesn't quite necessarily cover all bases, but that is the normal one. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that you, that's describing it just in mechanics. But we are not a machine, despite what people want to believe. We are not a machine. And something happens. To so say, I... I don't think I saw a dead body until I became a minister. And then, when I was up in Broad, I had so many funerals. And I saw so many dead bodies. And sometimes there would be people who you knew really well. And for me, I would look at them and I would just say, it's not them. It's not them. It's their features, it's their body, but it's not them. Something has gone. The life, obviously, the life has gone. And life is more than just blood. And life is more than just uh, a brain. Though obviously, it involves uh, all of that. Now, the world's view of death, when the world thinks about it at all, is, is for me summed up. And I, and I wish I could have played you this clip. I tried to get it. I couldn't get it. But if you can, 
Go and Google it. By, uh, there's a guy called Just Jack. And he has a song called The Day I Died Was the Best Day of My Life. And to describe the song, it's a, it's a, it's a very strange song at one level. Because it shows a guy who's been battered and so on. And he'd been hit by a taxi, actually. And it shows him, he's singing and he's talking about, I got up in the morning. I, I, it was just such a great day. My, he's talking to his wife. He said, you look so beautiful in my old dressing gown. The kids were fantastic. They weren't gurney. I got out. I got the first bus that was there. I went to work. I had a great day. My boss got fired, and I knew I was going to get his job. And it kept going on and on and on like this. You know, I went into the shop. People said hello to me. I went to the park bench for my lunch, and the usual winos weren't there, and it was wonderful. And it, you get to the end of the song, and it's, what oh, guess I didn't see the taxi. And then you see a whole bunch of ambu- uh, an ambulance and a whole bunch of people clapping their hands. Uh, and obviously, he's died. And the, the refrain of the song is constantly, the day I die is the best day of my life. Now, what he was saying in that song, actually, is that everything that happened on that day was really good, and then I died. And the actual message, it's, it, I've watched it about 20 times. Um, who was it? It was John Ellis, actually, who, who showed it to me. And I, I've watched it about 20 times since then, and I just thought, that's it. If you don't believe in life after death. That is it. It's the best day because your boss got fired. It's the best day because you managed to get the park bench all to yourself. But for the Christian, the day of our death is the best day of our life. And we're going to look at why that is the case. So what do we actually gain at death? Paul talks about To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let me go through through some of these things. Now, please don't get me wrong. If you are a Christian, you are afraid of death, and I am. Okay? I, I, I confess that. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I am. If you are a Christian, you are afraid of death. You shouldn't be induced to feel all guilty. Death is still the last enemy. It's the last great enemy. Now, it's a defeated enemy but it's still an enemy. But for the Christian, it is also the daybreak of eternal brightness. I want to argue that death for the unbeliever is is darkness. It's entrance into absolute darkness. But for the believer, it's entrance into absolute light. And the catechism question sums it up in this way, and I'm going to just go through some of the things. First is that our bodies rest. They rest. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14 says this, we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Sorry, the verse before that says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. It's funny, I, I one thing I have absolutely observed, I have observed people dying and not being Christians, as far as we know, and their families having no hope. And I've observed people dying who most certainly were Christians and their funerals, whilst incredibly solemn and incredibly sad, were also incredibly joyful. I remember after one funeral of a man called Rod McKenzie, 
an elder in the Free Church up in Barora. I remember uh, someone coming up to me after the funeral and saying, I find it impossible to believe that anyone could have been in this service and not have become a Christian. And it wasn't a gospel sermon as people would understand it. It was just this palpable sense of life and joy, the reality of it that came through. Now, the hope that Christians have is this. It's first of all, simply that our bodies rest. We suffer in our bodies. Our bodies are just absolutely amazing things. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But all of us will suffer in our bodies in one way or another. And there comes a point when the body stops. That's it. Now, it's not the end of our body. It's fascinating. Um, well, maybe for you, <laughs> this wouldn't be fascinating. I, don't ask me how. I listened to a discussion on the radio, a podcast actually it was, from Radio 4, of cannibalism, the philosophy of cannibalism. Um, it sounds very, very strange, but in the early church, actually the case that St. Augustine, one of the biggest arguments that was used against the resurrection of the dead was they said, well, what if there are people who are cannibals and what about the bodies and this big kind of philosophical arguments about that? Well, of course, we know that the body rots. We know that whether you're cremated or buried or whatever, it's your body, it, it, it rots. And yet there is a promise in the Bible of a physical resurrection. We're not 100% sure just exactly how that works and what's involved. But one thing that is absolutely sure, for the believer, the body is resting. So much so that it is described here as sleep. They have fallen asleep in Jesus. I think personally, actually, that's a very, very beautiful picture. If you have a loved one, a child, a parent, a brother, a sister, a friend, a spouse, and they die, and you look upon them as being asleep. Because it's like being at your child's bedside at night and saying goodnight. You're going to see them in the morning. That's what's being taught here. The second aspect of that is our souls go to glory. What is the soul? The soul is what makes us us. In, in Genesis 1, we're talked about... We just, hear about how God created the man out of the dust of the earth and so on. But he breathed into him. His, he breathed. He became a life-giving spirit. And that's what makes us human. We do have souls. Now, the soul's not a substance. You can't x-ray the soul. You can't photograph the soul. But it's what makes us human. It's what makes us different. And our souls going to glory means the day you die, your body rests, your body is buried. But Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Your soul doesn't go to sleep. And that's why, again, for the believer, when the believer dies and you feel immense sorrow for the person, you are not feeling sorrow for them. You are feeling sorrow for yourself. Perfectly fairly, perfectly legitimately, perfectly rightly. Because if they are a believer, they have gone into absolute bliss, to glory, 
Botia says this, it's a state made perfect by the gathering together of everything good. I think that is a tremendous expression to say of a, a Christian who dies, they have gone to glory. It's not pie in the sky. It's something that is just incredibly wonderful. Then for, and, and we are, this is a kind of sort of two-part sermon, if you like, because the second part is going to be next week when we look at question 38 about the resurrection of the body and so on. So there's kind of more to come yet. But the third thing is we have freedom from sin and from trouble. Psalm 30 and verse 10 talks about all the days of our life being misery. And uh, Romans 7 verse 24. In fact, let's turn to the the Romans passage because I want to look at that a couple of times. Acts, Romans. Romans 7 and verse 24 says this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's talking there about the conflict that the believer has in this way, that we want to do good, but within us, within our bodies, within our flesh, there is a principle which goes against that, and all our lives we are constantly battling. So that in this life you will never do anything that is absolutely pure and absolutely good. I'm standing here teaching God's word. And I am teaching it, but not perfectly, because within me there is always still a mix of motives. There is a mix of different things. There is sin. And you battle that all your days. You never, ever reach perfection until you die. And then you have freedom. Augustine described life in this way, and it sounds pretty miserable. Long life is merely long torment which is a bit um, miserable, I think. But uh, for some people, often, that is true. And actually, for all of us, to some extent, that is also true. We get freedom from suffering, freedom from temptation. Revelation 7, verse 17 says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So this world is full of sin and trouble. Um, What's the blue song? Born under a bad sign. I've been bad since I began to crawl. If it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. That's the, the blues. And if you are an honest person, you should have the blues because it's sin and trouble all around. Change and decay and all around I see. It's not saying there's not beauty in life. It's not saying there's not goodness in life. But it is saying that beauty will die. It is saying that it will become deformed. And we battle all our days. And when a a believer dies, we gain freedom from sin and trouble. Number four, we shall see God. We shall see God. Heaven is not just the absence of suffering. It's not just the absence of evil, but it is the presence of God. We shall see Jesus. 1 John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. If you are a Christian, you may think, and you would be right to think, I know Jesus. But you ain't seen nothing yet. You have no idea. You think, I know Jesus. I mean, some of you are Christians. You became Christians a long time ago. And you remember when you became a Christian, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer, everything was wonderful. And you're saying, oh, if only I could regain that. If only I could get that back again. You get to heaven and it's way, way, way beyond that. We shall see God. Moses, when he saw God, his face shone. Psalm 17 verse 15 says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I... There's another way to describe this. Um, you get tired. We get tired of everything beautiful in this life, don't we? Uh, I'm dreadful when it comes to music. I hear a piece of music and it goes on my iPod or my phone and it gets played again and again. If you look at my, you know, the bit that tells you how many songs you've played and so on. Well, Stairway to Heaven is right up there 56 times or something. But you get a new song and um, like there's a song that I've, I've heard recently and I played it about 25 times. But see if you play something 25 times, eventually it really begins to grate. There are some songs that grate immediately. You know, the birdie song, whenever. is just always going to grate on you. But even the most beautiful, outstanding song, you play it again and again and again and again, and it just oh, really, really gets to you. It's like if you're staying in a flat with some students or you're staying in a home with a wife and children or whatever, and one of you, really likes the song and always wants... It's the best thing about earphones is that you don't, you don't have to inflict your taste on the rest of your family or your friends or flatmates or whatever. But sometimes you say, are you listening to that again? It's doing my head in. It's a beautiful piece of music, but it can do your head in. We become weary of everything. And people have this rather bizarre idea about eternity. There was an article, I think it was in the Times yesterday about man's fruitless search for eternity. And the guy was actually saying, look, even if we manage to get eternity, who would want it? You know, uh, imagine living for 900 years. How boring would that get? And imagine it being eternal. That eternity is when you scratch on a stone just slightly for a million years and you get one scratch in it, that's still only the beginning of eternity. And he's saying, it's just so boring. But the person who thinks like that hasn't grasped who God is. Because this is the beauty of who God is. That you can be with God for eternity and it is always fresh. It's always new. It's always beautiful. There's just, that's, that's the extraordinary thing that is being spoken of. God has made everything beautiful in its time. It's Ecclesiastes and he has set eternity in the hearts of men. So the person who says, oh, heaven would be really boring. I don't want to sit in a, har- a cloud and sit in a harp and play a cloud all day. <laughs> I don't want to sit on a cloud and play a harp all day. Um, well, we don't want to see you sitting on a cloud playing a harp all day. We don't, and we, we, we don't want to hear you. You know, we just don't. But heaven has infinite variety. That's the extraordinary thing. What you're doing is you're judging heaven by here and you're saying here is better. Uh-uh. Here at its best, it's only a taste. We shall see 
God. And rather than that being a terrifying prospect for the, for the Christian, it's got to be the most wonderful prospect for the Christian. We shall be filled with the love of God. We shall feast. Revelation 22 verse 2. Revelation 7 verse 6. Uh, we shall feast at the table. We shall love God perfectly. Fear is torment. Love is rapture. God is love. Is it um, Texas have a song, Here Comes the Summer Sun? I love, I absolutely love this weather. I love the beauty that you can see and so on. But it is cold. And I have to admit, if it was like that all the time, you know, I'd be glad when the warmth comes. Going to heaven is the warmth coming. There's the coldness of the body, and it's incredible how cold the body gets very quickly. But we enter into joy. Matthew 25, 21. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So when a Christian dies, we're filled with the love of God. We love God perfectly. All fear is gone. We enter into joy. What do we gain? Number six, a new home. That passage we read in 2 Corinthians, let's go back to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It, it's, when you're reading it, I wondered if you thought, really, what is this about? We know that if the earth we, tend, we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Who lives in tents? You live in tents if you're a passenger, if you're not staying somewhere for long. You live in tents if you're going to tea in the park or some weekend festival. None of you have the ambition in this life to say, I want to live in a semi-detached tent in Lockheed Park. You don't, you don't want to do that. Tenting is kind of romantic, camping and so on. It's when you're going on a journey somewhere. But actually, you want a house. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5 is saying. It's saying, listen, your body's a tent. You think your body is rock solid. You think your body is where you are at. No, it's not. Your body is a tent. You are going to get something that is so much better. That your heavenly body will be as better for you as living in a mansion is compared with living in a tent. In fact, he says, really, in this life, we're not clothed. We're, we're naked, we groan, we're burdened. We want to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So we gain a new home. And we love home. We, we love our homes. I mean, if, if you knew that you were dying, nobody really wants to die in a hospital. You want to go to your home. But it's a wonderful expression again for the believer to say that death is going home. You're going home. You've had enough. When I was 16 years old, I hitchhiked around Europe for seven weeks on 40 quid and a return ticket from London to Paris, myself and my friend. We had a whale of a time. We ran out of money after three weeks and our tent disappeared, fell out the back of one of our packs at midnight outside Paris. No, that's another story. But um, so we went four weeks, even, even without a tent, sleeping in a Danish barn and under a motorway bridge in Germany and lots of other places like that. 
And we had a, you know, it was a great adventure. It was fine. We got hungry at times. At other times, we ate really well. But there came a point. We were trying to get into Switzerland, across the Geneva border. We're standing there for 10 hours. We were hitchhiking. Nobody picked us up. And I just looked at my mate and said, I'm sorry. I want to go home. And we turned around, hitchhiked the other way, got to Paris, got the train, got to London. Mom, send me some money. <laughs> and got home. Now, that is what it's like for a Christian with death. You're going home. You're going home. It's a home you've never been to, but it's a home where you belong. And it's a home that's far, far better than anything you could possibly imagine. We shall enjoy renewed and new fellowship. Matthew 17 and verse 3. Let me just read that to you. It's one of the, again, the advantages. Just then, this is about the transfiguration. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, why did I put that there? Because Moses and Elijah obviously had died. There they were, talking with Jesus. They were recognizably Moses and Elijah. They recognized one another and so on. Will we know one another in heaven? The answer to that is absolutely yes. That has a huge impact. You think of those who have gone before you. You think of your friendships just now. If you are a believer, then you will know one another in heaven. I am. There's lots of people I'm looking forward to meeting in heaven. I really, really, really want to meet Martin Luther and ask him why he was so rude. I want to meet John Calvin and see, I'll bet he's not miserable in heaven, and I'm sure he wasn't miserable on earth. Um, there are lots and lots of people who you would meet in heaven. I know that sometimes people say, well, our focus will entirely be on God. Yes, but don't you understand? God created us for relationship with him, and part of being in heaven is that relationship is fulfilled. I, that's why it's really important. What we are doing here just now is a moment in time, but it could last for eternity. The friendships you create here can be friendships that will be eternal. They really will. There's differences, of course. There is no marriage in heaven and so on. But um, I tell you what there isn't in heaven. There's no sin disrupting our relationships. There are no jealousies. There is harmony. There is unity. There is no fear. There is no pain. We shall enjoy renewed and new fellowship. And finally, we shall receive our reward. I'm not going to go through all these verses, but it is just simply a case that God in his grace doesn't just take us to heaven. He rewards us. He, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And there are different degrees of reward, and perhaps that's something that we could look at um, another time. But that's our aim in life. You see, even if you're a Christian, I'm sure this is true for some of you, and it's certainly true for me. What is my aim? What is my resolution this year? It's all trivial, isn't it, compared with heaven? It's like, um, I, I, this thought struck me, and it amused me, it may not amuse you, but there are people right now who are writing books and saying things about the end of the world. The end of the world is coming soon. And I saw this, forgive me, on God TV, where you, watch, you go to this conference and you buy this book, and I thought, why are you selling a book about the end of the world if you really think it's coming? What's the point? 
Why not just give it away because the money's going to be no use to you? It's the end of the world. It's coming within a year. So there's no, you don't need it to be a bestseller. Who cares? It's completely pointless if it is the end of the world. I think for, for us as Christians, if you grasp this, then what it does is it doesn't mean that everything becomes meaningless to you or you kind of in despair and you give up on everything, but it means that everything is set in context and it means that your aim and your ambition is just simply to live well, to die well, and to go home. To go home. You long to be with Christ, which is far better. But whilst you're here in this world, you're going to live for him. Once you grasp that, it really does change it. Who cares if you've got a mansion on this earth? Who cares if you've got a big stock portfolio? Who cares if you've got a title or a degree or any of these things? It's not that you shouldn't have any of them. It's just that they shouldn't be your aim. Your aim is to get to heaven and you brought nothing into this world and you'll take nothing out of it. Except in Revelation it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Their deeds follow after them. And you know, I think probably the greatest thing in heaven would be, would be to say, here am I and the children God has given me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you met somebody in heaven and they said, you know, because of you, because of what you said, because of how you were, because of what you did, I'm here. I'm eternally grateful to you. I know it was God working. I know it's only through the sacrifice of Christ, but thank you so much. That's why the end of Malachi talks about the stars shining in their crown. And I, I love the gospel song, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? That's what we're looking for. Let me say something. If that's what the believer gains, let me just say a little bit about what does the unbeliever lose. Because the Bible nowhere, now this is, this is you, you really have to grasp this as well. The Bible nowhere teaches universalism. The notion that heaven is absolutely for everybody. No, heaven is not for those who do not want it. Heaven is not for people who choose not to go there. Those who do not want God, those who reject God, those who turn against Jesus Christ, they, they are choosing an eternity without him. And this is what the unbeliever loses. I'm just going to mention it. The unbeliever, first of all, loses the world. You can work as hard as you like, get as much money as you like, do as much as you want. You take none of it with you. The Egyptian pharaohs, you know what they did? You know why the pyramids are built? Because they believed they would take all their wealth into the afterlife. They believe even that they would take some of them, their wife and their children, and they would bury their wife alive in the tombs. They would put their wealth in there, their gold and so on. When people broke into the tombs, had the gold gone? No. They just stole it. It's gone now. But not because it's gone into the afterlife. It's because it's been nicked in this world. The unbeliever loses the world. The unbeliever loses their soul. Matthew 16, 26 and 27. Let me read this to you. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What can you give? Nothing. You lose your soul. You lose heaven. And I'm fed up of the pathetic jokes that people make. Oh, I wouldn't want to go to heaven because it would be boring. I want to be with my mates in hell. 
It's pathetic, juvenile, childish, ignorant, and really, really dumb to think like that. And you lose your hope. Job 8 verse 14. There is no hope. There is no hope. The unbeliever loses all those things. So when the unbeliever dies, it is a cause of absolute mourning. Now, part of the problem for us as Christians is that we have friends, we have relatives who die. We don't know where they're at. Who knows how God has worked in their life? But the point is simply this. We are to concern ourselves with where we are at. We are to concern ourselves, what is our condition before God? And it's true. I, I don't know where you stand. But I know you have to ask this question. If you were to die tonight, if this were, if you were like just Jack, the day I died was the best day of my life. If you became a Christian tonight and you walked out and you went under a bus, this would be the best day of your life. But if you didn't, it would be the worst. That's what I was trying to say at the beginning. I don't get it. I don't grasp it. I cannot see how people can honestly live without Jesus Christ, without hope. Because it is. If you are without God, you are without hope in this world, and you'll be without hope in the world to come. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chances. This is it. This is the life that you've got. And what you do in this body, and what you believe with this mind, and what you feel with this heart, and what you confess with this mouth, is what you are going to do for all eternity. That's why, I'm going to the last bit, how does this apply now? Well, I, I do, let me, before I apply these two things, let me apply it in terms of for those of you who are not believers. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says about pleading with people to be reconciled to God. If I knew that when you walked out of this building, somebody was going to kill you, I knew that. I would be on my knees pleading with you not to leave the building, not to go out that door. Call the police, get someone else or whatever. But I know something worse than that. I know that if you die, if you live without Christ and you die without Christ, you will spend eternity without Christ. And that is a burden that's it's impossible to carry. I think about it in terms of those who are closest to us our own families. And you, you, you have no idea how your heart breaks for those in your family who do not know Jesus and the joy that comes when they do. You don't want people to know Jesus so that they can be like you. You don't care two hoots about people joining your church. That's not the issue. The issue is you want them to know you love them and you want them to have the very best thing for them. There's a, a, an atheist comedian in the United States who wrote a marvelous article in which he said, if Christians believe what they believe, then if they really love me, they have to tell me about it. He says, I don't object at all to any Christian telling me. Because if they really believe it, that's showing great love. 
I'm telling you this. This is a dangerous prayer to pray if you are a Christian. Pray that God would give you that, that burden for people. Moody, when he was in Sockey Hall Street, the American evangelist Moody in the 19th century, when he was in Sockey Hall Street in Glasgow, was so overwhelmed with the thousands of people walking past that he, he went into the entrance of a shop and sat down and just cried. And he cried. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Why did he weep over Jerusalem? Because he saw what was coming. If you, Jerusalem, if only you had known. If only you had known. You're not a Christian. I have no interest in you becoming a member of the church. I have no interest whatsoever in adding another notch to the evangelist banner. No interest in brainwashing. I just don't want you to die without Jesus Christ. And I plead with you to get to know Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are Christians, please let's, let's have that burden on our hearts. Now the Lord, we can't carry that burden on our own. Jesus takes that burden. But we still need to feel it. We are far too complacent about the people around us. You care. You know, if you want to have a collection and raise a lot of money, you know what you do in the Christian church? You show a picture of a starving baby in Burundi or elsewhere, and you say, look, and people will give because they see that need. Why is it then that we so struggle in giving both time and money and talents to communicate the gospel? What is more important? Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying at all you don't, we don't give to tear fund and lots of it. Of course we do. We are Christians and we, we believe that we are there to help people in every single way possible. But I suspect what we give sometimes indicates the lack of our acceptance and belief of what's really, really going to happen. And we need to know it. For those of us who are Christians, let's just come back to this, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Two things. We're going to sing this in a moment. No fear in death. When I come to the word of God like this, I said at the beginning I have a lot of fear of death. I do, but not now. Why? Because I'm reading what the Bible says, I'm reading what Jesus says, and I'm going, yes, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. That takes away the fear. And it's not wishful thinking. This is reality. This is the truth. Without this, everything's surreal. Without this, nothing makes sense. But there is no fear in death for the Christian. And for me, I have to trust that God will give me enough grace for each day, including the day that I die. And if I had to be one of those people who has been killed for their faith, then God would grant that I could do so joyfully and cheerfully and know. That's what it is to trust in God. No fear in death and no guilt in life. Now, what does that mean? We look forward to glory, not backwards to guilt. We've done some rotten things. We've thought some rotten things. We're pretty screwed up people. But when we look forward to heaven, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's why for the Christian, 
The most practical thing in the world is to contemplate what is to come. Glory is coming. It may be suffering. There may be one. There may be struggle just now, but glory is coming. Jesus is coming. And that liberates us. There is no guilt in life. No fear in death. No guilt in life. That's why the teaching about death is, is so central and so crucial and so important. We are not the Muslim martyrs who go to death thinking that they're going to get 72 virgins in heaven or this kind of reward or that kind of reward. We are not the kind of mystics who think, well, it doesn't really matter because our body is evil and all this kind of stuff. We're not that either. We are ordinary human beings, ordinary people with ordinary bodies, ordinary minds, with souls, spirits. And when we die, it's not over. When we die, it's only just beginning. The day I die will be the best day of my life. Not because that particular day will have so many good things happening in it, but because it's the entrance into glory. May God grant that each of us would understand and accept that. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. I pray if there's anybody here who's never ever come to you or given their life to you, that they would do so. I pray that you would impress upon their heart and mind the absolute urgency of this and the wonder that you came to give eternal life. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I pray for those of us who are your people. Lord, most of us maybe just ignore the whole issue. And some of us get very scared. It's too big for us to handle, too oppressive, too hard, too difficult. And yet, Lord, open our eyes to see beyond the grave. Open our eyes to see glory. Open our eyes to see a life with no pain, suffering, sorrow, to see forgiveness. Open our eyes to see renewed bodies. Lord, we bless you for life and for the life that we enjoy in this world. But we bless you that that is just a foretaste of the life that is to come. Help us to know that and to live our lives in the light of that. In your name.